Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. This Wednesday, we are going to get the minutes from the latest Federal Reserve meeting where they talked about everything from the economy to potential risks to the downside uh, for the U.S. But most important, what everyone is looking for is guidance on how the Fed is going to unwind its $4.5 trillion balance sheet. And for somebody who knows quite a bit about this is former Minneapolis Fed President uh, Nariana Kochilakota, who joins us now by phone. Uh, he is also a Bloomberg View columnist as well as a professor of economics at the University of Rochester. Uh, Nariana, thank you so much for joining us. You wrote a recent column saying that the Fed is making a $2 trillion mistake, saying that they really should not be considering whether to shrink their balance sheet at all. It is the wrong question. They should not go that route. Can you explain why? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Lisa. Um, so my thinking there is that I remember when we were uh, hit with shocks when I was back on the committee in the dark days of 2010 and 2011. Uh, one of the things we wanted to be able to do was to lower interest rates. Um, but we didn't have the, couldn't do that because the interest rates were as, pretty much as low as they could go. If the Fed were to keep their balance sheet at the current size of $4.5 trillion or even potentially grow it over, with the economy, um, they would – uh, over the longer run, also be keeping their short-term interest rate tool higher because they're already providing a lot of accommodation through through um, that uh, balance sheet. The way you would offset that is by keeping your, your interest rate tool higher. So that means when you go into a recession, you're facing shocks, you've got your interest rate tool that you're familiar with, you know how it works, that's the one you're going to be relying on to, to offset shocks. So I think the, the Fed would just be better off just, uh, as I say, keeping the balance sheet constant or even, uh, uh, as I suggest in my post, um, keeping that um, uh, growing over time as the economy grows. So in other words, just to make sure that I understand what you're saying, you're saying that if the Fed keeps the big balance sheet, then they have more room to raise interest rates and then have that as sort of the more well-known tool to deal with upcoming crises, whereas if they shrink the balance sheet, uh, they're going to have a harder time raising rates just because the level of accommodation is going to be less on the balance sheet side. Am I am I getting that right? You said it exactly right. Thank you for, yes, thank you. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. I, I just want to make sure. I mean, I I guess that the Fed's argument and what a lot of people are saying in the market is, well, the Fed's going to move at such a glacial pace. And because demographics are changing to such a degree where you have people aging and cycling their money into more reliable investments like bonds, you're not going to end up getting that big of a move, if anything at all. In fact, yields on the on the long end might even go down, even as the uh, Fed unwinds its balance sheet. And then they'll have this tool as well open to them uh, in the next crisis. What do you say to that? Yeah, I I've actually I've heard actually some speakers in the FOMC make this argument. I I, I just don't understand it. Um, the estimates we've had from the effect of the balance sheet are pretty clear. It's it's basically substitutable with our. Uh, I I lapsed into our because I'm still thinking about myself being on the committee. But it's the Fed. <laughs> it's perfectly substitutable uh, with the Fed's uh, typical tool of the Fed funds rate. Um, so as you reduce the size of the balance sheet, you are um, substituting 
substituting for interest rate increases. And in fact, uh, uh, President Dudley of the New York Fed has made this point on a couple of occasions. Um, so I, th- I think that's the right way to be thinking about it, that if you scale back the, the position you have in, in long-term assets, you're removing demand stimulus from the economy, and um, you're going to have to make that up in some way. And the way you'll be making it up is by keeping uh, your short-term interest rate, the Fed funds rate, lower than you would otherwise uh, be doing. So this brings us to another column that you recently wrote about forecasting growth, because when you talk about short-term interest rates, let's leave aside the balance sheet, right? Because let's say uh, the Fed decides to keep it at $4.5 trillion for the time being, puts off any discussion of ceasing to reinvest any proceeds that they get from that, and they just focus on raising interest rates. Um, There's a lot of questions about how much they could really do that based on growth and the potential for growth. And, you know, when you look at what the Fed is talking about, do you think that they're measuring growth the right way? And given what they're looking at, what's the sort of end rate for overnight uh, benchmark borrowing costs that you think is, is feasible in the near future? Oh, wow. Um, okay. So that last question is really hard. Um, and it would depend on where you end up with the balance sheet. Um, you know, I think if you, you were to, to uh, uh, shrink the balance sheet, you're, it's really going to put much more of a cap on where you can end up in, in, in the longer run with your, your interest rate tool. I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised you would end up with a number that starts with a two, you know, in the, in the longer run if, that's, if, the, if you do end up shrinking the balance sheet. If you keep the balance sheet where it is, then I think you're, you, you'd be able, more, feel more comfortable with a, uh, probably in the longer run with a number that would start with a three. Um, Let me talk. I think I think you've hit upon a really important point, which is how hard it is to gauge the growth opportunities that are out there in the U.S. Uh, There's a lot of pessimism out there um, that uh, maybe the U.S. two percent is all we can hope for, um, something in the two to three percent range. You'll hear some optimism as well from from uh, certainly from the administration uh, is more optimistic about growth opportunities. But it's really hard for us to as economists to get that right and. I think the Fed would be safer um, to, uh, to, uh, calibrating their interest rate increases to what's going on in the inflation dimension. They're better at forecasting inflation. They understand inflationary pressures better. Um, and the whole question of capacity, how much growth opportunity there are, uh, there are in the U.S., is about how much can we grow the economy without running into generating too much inflation. So I think the Fed would be better off uh, holding back being cautious about raising rates until we actually saw um, real clear signs that we were going to get back, we are at 2% their target and, and staying there. So I know, I'm, I'm sure that you're still friendly with people who are on the FOMC right now. And do any of them kind of feel the way that you do and just feel like the, the tide's moving toward reducing the balance sheet? But uh, So we'll go along with that, but we're, we're kind of a little worried about that. You know, I, I know nothing beyond uh, <laughs> this stage. I'm uh, just another outsider, like uh, like uh, everyone else listening to this. I so, but I but when I track, um, you know, I, I, I you know, I think the the person who's probably uh, been most cautious about uh, the interest rate increases is obviously uh, uh, President Kashkari in in Minneapolis. Right. And so, uh, you know, if you were to ask me that question, I guess I would point to him as being the the most obvious uh, person along those lines. Nariana Kochalakota, thank you so much for joining us. Nariana Kochalakota is a Bloomberg View columnist and, of course, uh, the former Minneapolis Fed president and currently professor of economics at the University of Rochester. We're really uh, glad you could join us.
President Trump did land in Israel uh, earlier today, and we already heard comments from both President Trump as well as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to give us a better sense of what we can expect to learn from this trip. Uh, I want to bring in Michael Arnold, who's the Bureau Chief for Israel and Palestinian Territories for Bloomberg. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I would just like to first get a sense of what President Trump plans to do while he is in Israel and uh, Palestinian territories and what the goal is here. Well, he's got quite a full itinerary. Uh, Already, as soon as he landed, he was whisked by helicopter to Jerusalem, where he met with the president. Uh, Then he took a a tour of uh, holy sites in the old city, both uh, Christian and Jewish. Uh, Now he's meeting with the prime minister, and later he's going to have dinner with the prime minister. Uh, Tomorrow he's going to head to the Palestinian Authority areas to meet with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, and then back to Israel for a major speech. Um, In terms of what he's trying to accomplish, I think that there's a few things. Um, You know, he may make some kind of a a statement on the peace process that would give some clarity uh, as to what the Trump team's uh, vision uh, is for that, because until now he's given really conflicting signals. Um, And I think also Israel is going to be looking very closely to see uh, if there's really any substance to these these hints about closer cooperation for Israel with the wider Arab world, including uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, I'm struck by the tone. I've been watching some of the or a lot of the coverage, particularly President Trump uh, being in Riyadh and and being just with all the Saudi Arabian princes and the incredible ceremonies. And they were tracking his visit down to the minute of when he would arrive. What kind of reception has President Trump gotten in Israel? Uh, it's, it's funny. Uh, Israel certainly can't compete with, with Saudi Arabia in, in terms of extravagance uh, or, in, uh, or in hospitality. Uh, this is a place which uh, has, has many uh, good things, but uh, customer service is not really uh, one of its strong points. So there was a very simple welcoming ceremony at the, uh, at the airport, which um, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had to, you know, had to twist his, his cabinet minister's arms just to get them to go. Uh, and then there were uh, some, some snafus with uh, one of the uh, Knesset members trying to take a selfie with Trump uh, to Netanyahu's chagrin. Um, but, you know, I think that this kind of, uh, you know, this is kind of the, the homey atmosphere of Israel. Uh, I'm not sure if that's um, quite up Trump's alley. Uh, you know, you get the sense from his own um, real estate career that uh, he might feel more at home in the type of gilded palaces that he saw in, in Saudi Arabia. But this is what Israel has to offer. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, you know, we've heard a lot right before President Trump left. There have been a lot of articles written about how he's escaping the turmoil of Washington. He's leaving the uh, the difficulties at home to go abroad. And one of those difficulties came when President Trump uh, perhaps inadvertently gave more information or than, than perhaps some intelligence officers wanted him to, uh, to the Russian foreign minister and included information that allegedly was given to the U.S. by an Israeli informant. Um, has there been any discussion about that, if not out loud in back office discussions? Have you gotten a sense of what the reaction is like uh, in uh, Israel? Yeah, you know, certainly, uh, you know, there was a lot of consternation here. Um, I would note that it hasn't been confirmed that the information came from Israel. Uh, there were also some reports that it came from Jordan. But, you know, the working assumption is that it did come from Israel. Um, you know, people here are upset. But on the other hand, you know, they don't really have much option other than to continue sharing intelligence, um, you know, with the U.S. Um, and in terms of, you know, how people here are reacting to Trump's uh, domestic problems, uh, you know, the prime minister here is also under police investigation. So, um, 
you know, this is something which Israelis are, are kind of used to. It's, it's the kind of a background noise uh, against which, you know, government is, is conducted here. Uh, it's interesting to note, you know, with, with both of these leaders, you know, kind of facing such, um, such problems and both feeling that they're hounded by opponents and are, and are uh, mistreated, you know, perhaps this could push them to make some kind of a breakthrough. And, you know, we've, we've certainly seen leaders in the past, like, you know, Nixon going to China, uh, you know, being able to make important breakthroughs when they do feel that their, their backs are against the wall. You know, one other big issue here, uh, possibly the biggest, is Iran, right? I mean, we just had the election in Iran, the more moderate uh, person one, candidate won, and uh, yet President uh, Trump has continued with his more hardline rhetoric, which, frankly, my understanding is that Israel would like to see more of. Can you give us a sense of what might come of these meetings uh, that President Trump is having uh, with Prime Minister Netanyahu and uh, what the implications for Iran could be? Sure. Um, it's interesting because here, you know, even though so much of the headlines, uh, you know, deal with the peace process, really Iran is the number one issue. Uh, and, you know, I've... Uh I think Israeli officials have, have been really gratified to see the very strong statements that, that the president has made on this trip. Um, the, the speech that he gave in Saudi Arabia, which was presenting the, the uh, war on terror as, uh, you know, as, as, as you know, not, a, not a clash of, of, of civilizations or a clash of religions, but rather uh, you know, people of goodwill versus, you know, versus villains. Um, you know, so I think that, you know, that, that they've been quite heartened here. Um, we, you know, we, we were told, uh, you know, by, by a source uh, close to Netanyahu the other day that he, he is going to really push hard for, for uh, new sanctions on Iran, that, uh, you know, he wants to create what, uh, what this advisor termed a, a, a dirty Harry moment referring to, um, you know, to the Clint Eastwood films where he would dare the bad guys to shoot him so that he could blow them away. Uh, so that, you know, Israel's really hoping that, the, you know, that the, the, that the president can, can really insist on, uh, on Iran changing its behavior. And if it doesn't, you know, perhaps set up a confrontation that, uh, that uh, would improve the situation to Israel's advantage. Michael Arnold, thank you so much uh, for keeping tabs on this, and I'm sure we will hear more about the trip. Michael Arnold is a bureau chief for Israel and Palestinian territories for Bloomberg News, speaking with us about President Trump's trip to the Middle East. We want to take a moment to let you know about something new from Bloomberg. Starting right now, you can use our iOS app or our new Google Chrome extension to scan any news story on any website, instantly revealing relevant news and market data from Bloomberg and other sources related to companies and people you're reading about. So no matter where you're reading the news, you can bring the power of Bloomberg's news and data with you. It's pretty amazing. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension on the Chrome store to try it out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash lens. We've heard a lot about stagflation. But what about stagulation? That uh, term was coined by David Zervis, chief market strategist at Jeffrey's LLC. And he joins us now on some of his latest comments. David, um, thank you so much for joining us. I was really struck by your latest uh, missive. You were talking about how regulation is really uh, stymieing growth in our economy and in a way that people don't really recognize. And you had a statistic that was pretty uh, mind-boggling to me. You said that uh, data suggests that nearly 10% of U.S. GDP is associated with the cost of federal regulation intervention. Really? Well, that's according to the Competitive Enterprise Institute, Lisa. And um, there's a lot of different studies. The, the, the problem I've 
had in digging into the costs of regulation uh, is that, unfortunately, it becomes quite political quite quickly. And so the think tanks that are associated with the right come up with some numbers. The think tanks on the left come up with other numbers. The economics profession in and of itself is not particularly good at measuring these things. And so you're really kind of, you know, sort of throwing throwing your hands up in the air a little bit and trying to trying to you know, play some guessing games, which, by the way, is pretty true about everything in the economics profession, frankly. But but it's just <laughs> says the chief market strategist at Jeffries. Love it. But it's particularly acute in, in this uh, study of regulation. And I think also it, it kind of, um, you know, it gets to the heart of a debate between, you know, traditionally interventionist economists and those who, who favor, you know, much less government intervention. So it really gets to the heart of the the kind of Chicago school, freshwater, saltwater debates that have gone on for many years. All right. So let's put aside the exact rigor with which uh, some of these estimates are established. A lot of people would agree that regulatory burdens have increased, particularly since the 2008 financial crisis. And uh, you make an argument that this has materially limited growth, regardless of of whether it's 10 percent or or not, uh, and that these regulations are largely non-productive. In other words, they don't really add anything to the economy and that it has that these have reduced competition. Um, do you think that all regulations are non-productive and that all regulations reduce competition? No, no. And I think, look, there's other forces that can reduce competition besides regulation. What I guess I'm pointing at, by the way, that was a, a great question that we could probably talk about for the next five days or more. All right. But, okay. but let me let me just let me just try to get to kind of the heart of the regulatory burden story. One of the things that we've seen added significantly in in a lot of businesses are hours worked associated with things like compliance and regulation. In the financial industry, for example, I think the latest count has Citibank's compliance department somewhere in the neighborhood of 29,000 people, which is the same size as Goldman Sachs. That is a marked increase, significant increase over what that department looked like prior to the crisis. Those hours worked are are serving a purpose. We're, we're overseeing a systemically important institution in theory uh, in a better way to stave off financial crises in the future. But those hours work don't actually produce returns. They don't produce GDP. They don't. Nobody's making a widget in that in that compliance department. And so I think what you have to come to grips with, and this is true of environmental regulation, it's true of healthcare regulation. We've added an enormous amount of hours worked to the menu of, uh, of, of job creation in the United States post-crisis, where a lot of those hours worked aren't actually contributing to final demand in a traditional way. So we don't get a lot of GDP per hour worked, which is, my opinion, one of the reasons why productivity, which is output per hour work, has actually been slowing quite substantially and why returns on capital have been lower or our star has been lower in the right. Fed's model and why potential growth uh, appears to be closer to one and a half, two rather than two and a half, three. So I think a lot of that adds up. Now, I mean, I'm not making a statement about is it good or bad? I'm making a statement about what it means for interest rates and what it means for economic growth. Right. We don't measure environmental quality we, in economic growth. We don't measure the quality of our groundwater or the likelihood or unlikelihood of a financial uh, of financial instability event. Those don't get put into GDP, and so you have to make some uh, you have to make some assumptions about well, 
about whether those things are good or bad. And I think right. a lot of people would agree they're pretty good. Right. Well, but but look, so let's bring it down to the market, right? Because that's that's why this matters is because if you think that this is going to be a story of aging demographics and just sort of the change in the overall economic global climate, then it's going to be hard to change that, right? And therefore, interest rates would remain low no matter what any government almost does, right? But if you believe that there is a step like cutting regulation that could materially boost growth, then yeah. we would move away from this stagflation uh, kind of picture and toward one where you could see interest rates rise more substantially and uh, stocks get a boost more substantially, correct? I mean, that's sort of the, the reason why this matters for markets. Well, I, I, think you're exa- I, think, I think you're exactly right on the first part, 100%. And that's why we're talking about it. <laughs> um, right. We're talking about it because um, is it a demand side problem or is it a supply side problem? Is it a lack of aggregate demand as my friend Larry Summers would argue, because of aging demographics, because of income inequality, because of a number of other issues that have created this savings glut globally? Or is this just that people have underinvested, not because there's, you know, there's some sort of, you know, you know, demand side problem, but they're actually underinvesting because the supply side restrictions, the, the, the regulatory environment made it very complicated to invest heavily in the United States and in many other countries post-crisis. And I think, look, I, I think you can make an argument for a demand shock pretty early in the crisis. There's no question there was one in 08, 09. I think what happened is starting in 10, we started to see this demand shock dissipate, but a regulatory environment emerged that created a much more stagulatory uh, outcome, if that's a word um, that like I'm going to create, uh, stagulatory outcome than otherwise would have happened. And I think the exciting thing, um, you know, there, there's a lot of exciting things about watching our current political environment, um, notwithstanding, you know, SNL skits and late night TV, which are pretty exciting to watch as well. But <laughs> I think the one exciting thing I would say is, and, and what I've talked about with our clients mostly is, you know, it's not the trade, it's not the immigration, it's not even the fiscal and the tax stuff. That, but the exciting thing about these policies is that there's a there's a sort of a move toward deregulation, which is being implemented at the departmental level. Right. It's being de- you know, at the Interior Department, at the Commerce Department, at the Treasury Department. It's not even a congressional push, and I think that's a tailwind for exactly what you were talking about: higher real returns to capital, um, yeah. higher productivity growth. Now. Wait, David, David, yeah, um, just we, real quick, one one line, yes or no, do you think that the regulatory reform is happening right now? I do. I think that right. these departments are changing the business environment so that less regulation is coming down every day from those in charge of pushing that regulation forward, David, which are the department heads. Thank David Zervas, so thank you so much for joining us. David Zervas is chief market strategist at Jefferies, uh, based in New York. Ford shares up about uh, 1.5% after news emerged that the uh, former CEO, Mark Fields, uh, was being removed from office and being replaced by turnaround specialist Jim Hackett. Keith Naughton has been following this and is at Ford right now. Keith Naughton is auto editor-at-large for Bloomberg in Detroit. Uh, Keith, can you tell us, did this come about kind of suddenly? Because it seemed to take a lot of people by surprise. Yeah, it happened very quickly. I, we've known for a couple of weeks that Mark Fields had been on the hot seat. The board had um, uh, 
kind of grilled him at a meeting a couple of weeks ago in advance of the uh, annual meeting to find out what was going on with the strategy because, as you said, the stock has been way down. Uh, profits are falling this year. Uh, but then they had another board meeting on Friday and uh, decided it was time for a change. So Bill Ford, uh, the executive chairman, then went and met with Mark Fields, who said he would resign. And then Bill Ford turned to Jim Hackett and said, you're our new man. So it, it, they focused today in talking about this, about how they need to speed up decision making. And I think this was an example of the first one. So let's talk about Jim Hackett. What do we know about him? What's his background? Well, so he was for years at the office furniture maker Steelcase, which is based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And um, he really uh, kind of uh, instituted a cultural change there. He, he got them to think less about, you know, just making furniture and more about how people work and how offices should be designed, which kind of ushered in the new era of more collaborative workspaces uh, instead of the, the cubicle farms that we used to know and hate. And now, um, and then after that, he went to the University of Michigan, his alma mater, where he played football for Schembechler, and he uh, he kind of turned around their athletic department and made a very uh, famous high-profile hire in Jim Harbaugh to coach the football team, which then started winning. So he's had a couple of uh, turnarounds under his belt. Ford is not the sort of classic turnaround where it's in crisis. It's expected to make uh, $9 billion this year pre-tax, but it is definitely lagging its crosstown rival General Motors in the, the product lineup it has today and even in the electric vehicles it has coming tomorrow. Well, what, did, what was the main problem with Mark Fields? I mean, yes, he did uh, make some decisions. We've talked about this before, about how perhaps he didn't put as much emphasis on SUVs or light trucks that other competitors did, and that sort of missed the mark a little bit uh, with the increase that we've seen in the sales of those vehicles in the past year or two. Uh, but aside from that, I mean, investing in the future doesn't seem like something that necessarily any successor would want to change, right? Yeah, I think, you know, he definitely suffered by comparison to his predecessor, Alan Mulally, who was the rock star, but also in the sort of execution. The, the magic that Mulally brought was this singular focus on turning the company around. He called it his one Ford plan. And then Mark Fields came along with this very complicated strategy. It's, uh, you know, about one foot today and one foot in tomorrow. We're an automotive and mobility company. People had a hard time understanding, you know, what he was aiming for. And investors fled the stock. They, they didn't really understand where he was going. And I think the employees as well were confused and had a hard time kind of marshalling themselves and all marching in the same direction. And so uh, what will... Uh... I mean, I'm just trying to, like, imagine somebody with a furniture background and a football background coming in to come up with, like, a, a really simple message for Ford. What will this simple message be that we're going to expect from Jim Hackett? Well, he said today that it's not about talking about these two different companies within one company, that they're a singular company and, you know, they're going to make money now and in the future. And they're going to better explain how they're going to do that, how they're going to do it with driverless cars and car sharing and electric vehicles. But it's all part of a piece instead of two separate pieces. And the key, and you can't underline it enough, is they're going to move quicker, move faster. Uh, Ford, um, under Mark Fields, is viewed as uh, having been a little indecisive and a little slow off the mark. So they're going to try and change that. And just real quick, it seems like shareholders are not mm, assuaged. I mean, one and a half percent is not that big of a move for such a big uh, change like this. Well, after declining 37% under Mark Fields, I think it, it's like a green shoot. There is so, <laughs> it's showing right. signs of promise. But uh, 
But, yeah, they have a lot of ground to make up for uh, all of the value that's been destroyed over the last three years. I'm sure that it's a very interesting day to be at Ford. Keith Naughton, thank you so much uh, for joining us from there. Keith Naughton is our editor uh, at large, focusing on autos uh, for Bloomberg News, and he is uh, based in Detroit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.